As you can see, we are just going to have a nice, mellow morning together. Yeah. Not so much, uh, but in all seriousness, and I've mentioned this at a couple other points during the series, uh, this really has been, and, and I'm not just saying this for dramatic effect, this really has been the most difficult series that I have ever prepared for. Uh, it's forced me to ask so many difficult questions of myself and my family. Uh, it's forced me to face up to a, a lot of realities and, and stuff that, that I've grappled with for years and years. It's forced me to a lot of a- ask a lot of difficult questions even uh, of this church as a whole. And I'm not sure if you caught it, but the, the focus of our time together uh, today is going to lie in the statement that we saw right there at the end of that video. There is no plan B. There's no plan B. If you sit here today, and I, I know that some of you would certainly fall under this label, if you sit here today and, and you call yourself a Jesus follower, we're it. We, we are plan A and, and there is no plan B. There, there's no alternative. We are the first and the only option. We are the instrument that God has chosen to use to bring the hope of the world, the message of Jesus to people who do not know him. And, and as we will see today, the, the, the ramifications for not responding to that call, they're, they're devastating. They're devastating. The premise for this entire series uh, lies in the fact that if you were to pick up any historical document uh, that records the rise of the early uh, Christian church, you would find something that sounds a whole lot different from what we are experiencing today. In fact, I've gone so far as to say during the series uh, that it's unrecognizable. It actually doesn't even sound like the same movement, that the reason the first century church grew, the, the reason that it was this unstoppable force that nobody could get in the way of, it, it had nothing to do with a dynamic communicator. It had nothing to do with an incredible kids program. It didn't have anything to do with really good music. It had everything to do with people. People living radically different from those around them. People who, after making that decision to put their faith in Jesus, look so different that the people around them, they had to know where that change was coming from. That they would literally share everything that they had. If I had something that was going to benefit you, you are more than welcome to use it. You are more than welcome to take it. If somebody had an urgent financial need, that their first response wasn't to put their hand on their shoulder and say, hey, I'm going to be praying for you. Their first response was to go out and start selling stuff that still had value to them and then take that money and give it to those people so that a need was actually being met. They would jump at the opportunity to serve one another. They didn't live like everybody else with just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. It was a complete, it was a dynamic shift. A simple observation of these people's lives would tell you, oh my goodness, something has changed. And with that thought in mind, the the challenge that we have been met with throughout this series is, is this. We can continue with business as usual and the Christian life defined by the culture around us or Or we can take an honest look at Jesus and dare to ask what the consequences might be if we really believed and obeyed him. And and if we recapture this, if we all, and I hope we all respond to this, if we all start living this radical life for Jesus as the first century Christians did, I'm telling you, Christianity will again become attractive. People will be breaking down our doors. We will have to find a new place to meet because so many people will want to figure out where the change that they are seeing in our lives is coming from. And for all of you that, that 
you find yourself going down this path, and again, I, I prayer, my hope has been is that we will all respond to this, and you start living this radically different life for Jesus, you will find that it is worth it. Not only for you, but for all of the lives around you as well, that even though, and I get this, even though in the moment it feels terrifying, even in the moment it can feel sometimes like we are giving up so much even though in those moments, I mean, we just have those internal debates like, oh my goodness, should I really be doing this? You never, you never regret taking those radical steps of obedience for Jesus. Now, if this is your first week with us today, you're like, holy smokes, like what the crud did I just walked myself into? I want you to keep in mind, you are stepping into part five. This is the final part of this series. And, and if this is your first week with us, one, we're really, really glad that you're here. Every single week, we have loads of new people that come walking through our doors, and we certainly don't take that for granted. We get that, that even as an adult, it can feel intimidating to walk into a new place. And so one, thank you for being here. But it's also like you're basically stepping into a movie like two hours after the movie has began. Like You're here now, and you're like, okay, I missed the first two hours. What's going on now. So we would encourage you, and we say this every single week, uh, if you're not able to be here on Sunday mornings, or maybe you've been kind of in and out throughout the series, we encourage you to go to grumlaw.com slash messages and get yourself caught up there. Listen, watch those messages. Every week kind of builds off of the last, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is you grab your podcast. But before we go any farther here this morning, um, I just want to pause. Before we kind of get in the meat of what we're going to be talking about today, I just want to pause, pray for you, pray for me. Uh, Let me do that now. Father, we just say thank you, thank you, thank you that you are a God that cares so deeply about every single person that, that is in this room. You knew that, that, that we were going to be here today. You knew exactly where we would be sitting. And so I just ask God that we would all be open, including myself, to whatever it is that you want to say to us today. That we would not be a church that a community of people that are content to listen to your words and that we walk out and nothing actually changes in our lives, but we would be a a church that is marked by action. Uh, It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you might have noticed one that I wasn't here. I had the opportunity to speak at one of our partner churches, and and that was a blast. And uh, therefore, we had a guest speaker, and and the person that was here, you you might have noticed he looked a little bit familiar. He was like an older version of myself, happened to be my father. Uh, And I just want to say that you guys are awesome. He felt so encouraged uh, being here. I mean, he just had just nothing but positive things to say. So thanks for welcoming him and making him feel certainly so good. And um, You might have also noticed this about my father, and I could say this because he's my dad. Um, He's really bald. He has like, it's like no hair to speak of really whatsoever. Uh, He's he's been balding since since I can earliest remember. I've never known my dad to to, to have hair. In fact, I asked him one time, I was like, when did you start balding? He's like, my senior year of high school. I'm like, man, that's rough stuff for a teenage boy, right? Um, But for as long as I can remember, for as long as I have known my dad, listen to this, he goes and pays to get his hair cut. And he doesn't go to like a barber, he goes to a salon. He will spend $30 to get like the six hairs on the top of his head trimmed. Now, I've always thought that this was peculiar. I've always thought that this is an enormous waste of money, even as like a middle schooler. I'm like, what is he doing? Why would you do that? But I didn't actually bring it up until my sophomore year of high school. And the thing that prompted it, uh, or my sophomore year of college rather, and it was uh, in my sophomore year of college, I used to have actually this really long 
hair. I'm sure I'll show you a picture at some point. But my sophomore year of college, I suddenly decided, you know what? I hate dealing with hair. I like waking up and getting out the door as quick as I can. And so I started shaving my head, and I haven't looked back since. And that day when I was in college, I spent $30 on a set of clippers, and I have been using them for every haircut since. So $30 for about 12 years of haircuts. That's pretty good, right? And so after I had been doing this for a couple of months, I brought it up with my dad. I was like, hey, dad, you know, I don't want to step on your financial toes too much, but why do you continue to pay to get a haircut? You could go out and spend $30 on a set of clippers and never have to pay to get your haircut ever again. I mean, you don't have a lot of hair to speak of. This would be the wiser financial option. And I'll never forget what my dad said to me that day. He said, son, I don't pay to get my haircut. And I was like, wait, they give it to you for free? He's like, no, I mean, I, I pay, but I'm not paying for the haircut really in my mind. I'm like, okay, you're gonna have to explain what in the heck you mean by this. He's like, son, I pay because 20 to $30 buys me about 30 minutes of undivided attention from a person that I otherwise would never have a relationship with. He goes, 20 to $30, he goes, somebody's cutting your hair, they have to listen to you. What are you going to do, walk away? Like, they're trying to make money. Like, they're going to sit there and listen to whatever it is that you have to say. And he went on to talk about, like, four or five different people that now come to the church from the salon that he goes to, and their eternities have been transformed. And you know what's really, really pitiful about that? And, and, and I'm embarrassed to admit this. That even with that explanation... And, and it wasn't like I was a kid at that point. I mean, I was an adult. I was in college. Even with that explanation, I still thought he was a fool for wasting his money. I, I still rolled my eyes at him and thought, you are such an idiot. Why wouldn't you just go out and buy the set of clippers? You're wasting so much money. Not only did I at that point think it was a waste of money, I was completely, at that point in my life, indifferent towards people who, if they would have died that day, would have spent their eternities separated from God. If I'm honest, I, I didn't care. And that, unfortunately, and I'm not saying this to point the finger at you, I mean, again, I just threw myself under the bus, that, unfortunately, describes a lot of people that are sitting here today. You don't really care that there are people that you spend time with on a regular basis, that if they were to die today, they would spend eternities separated from God. Or, or, or maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, okay, that's a little harsh. How dare you, you know, point the finger at me and, and say that to me. I, I do care. Like, it absolutely do care, but you don't actually care enough to do or actually say anything. Like, deep down, it bothers you like, as the names race across your mind right now, as the faces race across your mind right now, like, it, it does bother you, but, but you're just kind of hoping that, that somebody else comes along, somebody like your pastor, like me, or somebody else that you feel like is maybe just better at sharing their faith, that they come along and they have that conversation with that person. But, but here's what separates People like my dad and from a lot of people who wear that label of Christian, they don't assume that somebody else is going to come along. They don't hope that somebody else is going to be bold. No, in fact, they operate their entire lives under the assumption that God has chosen me. God's chosen me as the instrument to change his, to change her eternity. They're not looking over their shoulder assuming 
that someone else is on the way. They assume that they are it because after all, they might just be it. Too many of us, we, we have this thought that comes into our minds and most of us would probably never actually admit this out loud, but we're just kind of hoping that, that our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers, that in the end, that they're gonna just be okay because God's really loving or, or, or maybe they just hope that they're gonna get in because that person is a pretty good person or, or maybe somebody else is again gonna come along and be bold and, and share their faith with that and, person and in the end all is going to be well because we're so idealistic as people particularly as American people we hope that if people have not explicitly heard about Jesus then this is somehow going to excuse them from eternal condemnation we we, we hope that these people will still end up in heaven because they don't really know They don't really know. This type of thinking reflects the intensely emotional nature of this line of thought. We want, and I get that, we want people to be okay who have not explicitly heard the good news of Jesus. But but, but think about the logic of that conclusion. It asserts that people will be with God in heaven precisely because they never really heard about Jesus. Basically, not hearing about Jesus gives them a pass. In addition to there literally being no support of this, Jesus never alluded to it, his disciples never alluded to it, the writers of the Bible never alluded to it, consider the practical implications of this. It would mean that basically the worst thing that you could do for a person is to tell them about Jesus because that would only increase their odds of being separated from God for eternity. Before you opened up your mouth, they were getting in. But now that you decided to be bold and share that with them, they might go to hell. Thanks a lot. The worst thing you could do is invite a person to a church. The worst thing you could do is share your faith. The worst thing you could do is go on a mission trip. The worst thing you could do would be to invite them to one of our Christmas services. Because after all, ignorance is bliss. I I promise that as I sit in front of you right now, I take no joy (laughs) in communicating this. In fact, as I look at a lot of your faces right now, this is is really, really difficult. I kind of had this wrestling match with God this week. I'm like, do I have to say this stuff? It's hard to communicate. I would love to stand in front of you right now and just tell you that all is going to be well for everyone when they die and God's just going to end up letting everybody in. But again, we, we just have no evidence of that. And even if you know nothing about Christianity, even if you've never picked up a Bible and, and read that stuff for yourself, just think about it logically. Why would God have sent his one and his only son to die for us if in the end he was just going to end up letting everybody in anyway. We all have knowledge of God. It's all around us. His handiwork is everywhere, but we all reject God and therefore we are all guilty before him. Paul is a guy that... um, we, we read a lot about in, in the scriptures. In fact, Paul wrote basically like half of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And he wrote, uh, you know, a bunch of these different letters to all these Christian churches that were popping all over, uh, popping up all over, all over the, uh, the ancient world. And in one of those letters, uh, he writes it to the early Christian church in, in Rome. And he aptly calls this letter Romans because they were lacking in creativity back then. Uh, and in this letter, uh, one of the things that we have to remind ourselves of is, is Paul, at, at one point in his life, he was the biggest Jesus-hating person on the planet. 
In, in fact, he had dedicated his life to ridding the world of Christianity. His hobby was to go around, hunt down Christians, persecute them, kill them. I mean, it was his, his goal that on his deathbed, Christianity would no longer be a movement. But then through a radical encounter with the living God, his life pulls a complete 180. And he's still now known as the greatest church planter to have ever lived. God used this guy who hated Christianity, who hated Jesus. He used that same guy to spread the name of Jesus all over the ancient world. And in one of these letters, in this letter to the Romans, he reminds us of something that I think deep down we actually all know. He says this, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. It's like, geez, man, it's brutal. No one does good. Not a single one. We all fall short. Now, it's really easy to read this, and this definitely described me at a certain point in my life, to, to read this and get defensive and, and think, come on, that, that's, that's a little brutal. I mean, that, that's a little harsh. But I would challenge you to just be honest with yourself. I mean, you don't have to admit this to anybody else, but just be honest with you. I think deep down we all know that this is true, and here's why I think that we know that. You can't even get you right. I mean, you do things all the time that you know you shouldn't do them, that you know are wrong where you know in that moment you shouldn't be doing it. And take God out of the equation for a second. You know it's not what is best for you. But you do it anyway. So if you can't even keep your own rules, if you can't even hold up your own standard, do you really think that you're hitting God's, our creator? Additionally, one of the strongest arguments uh, that, that people make to me is in my world as a pastor against God and they just can't reconcile and they're like, there's no way I, I'm gonna get on board with this Christianity thing. It, it just has to be a load. Like, I, I hear this all the time. It's people like, they, they can't resolve in their heads that God would allow people for eternity to be separated from him. They, they, they can't resolve in their heads that God would allow people to go to that place that we don't really like to talk about, that, that God would allow people to go to hell. We, we have to remember, if that's ever cycled through your head, consider what he did with his one and his only son. He sent Jesus. He did not have to do that. He could have very well just hung an out of order sign on earth and walked away and said, forget them, they disobeyed, I'm done. But he chose to get involved. He sent his one and his only son for you so that we can be called righteous, which is just a fancy way of saying that we could still get a right standing with God so that we could still have a relationship with him. There's no injustice with God. The injustice lies in people who identify as Jesus followers and refuse to give their lives to making the knowledge of Jesus known to others. That is unfair. As I was preparing for this series, I, I came across this, uh, this quote, and it was just like a kick in the teeth for me. It says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Anybody want to take a stab at who that guy is, Penn Gillette? 
He's one half of the, the dynamic magic group called Penn and Teller. And you might think that by this statement, he's saying you know, that, that he would be a Jesus follower. He's actually not. He's an atheist and a very devout atheist um, and will use any opportunity and any platform he has given to bash and try to destroy Christianity. He uses this statement as an argument against Christianity. Because he figures, and he's read the Bible, he figures if what he reads in that thing is true, if Jesus actually came and died for our sins, and that eternal life was possible with our God, with our creator, then Christians, then people who wear the label of Christian, would actually be telling people about it. He, he can't fathom in his mind that everlasting life is a real thing, and that Christians don't shut up about it. He can't resolve that in his head. If you listen to his arguments against Christianity, I kind of went on a deep dive into this stuff as I was preparing for this. This is genuinely his number one piece of evidence that Christianity must not be true. That it must be a hoax. That we're all getting duped. But he's like, again, he's like, I, I can't fathom that there's a way to have everlasting life, and that there's also a way where you can spend you know, time in eternal damnation, and there aren't people constantly telling me about this. It, it, it's sad, but probably true. He probably knows more about Christian theology than the average American Christian, and he would assert, and I might add rightfully so, if what he reads about in the pages of the Bible, if what he reads specifically about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call those books the gospel books, they, they record Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, if all of that is true, then how come so many people who wear the label of Christian live their lives so incredibly similar to people who never step foot into a church on a Sunday morning? In other words, how is the urgency of Jesus' message not translated to any sense of urgency among Christians? How does 4.5 billion not motivate us? They're currently in our world a rough estimate would say 4.5 billion people who do not identify as Christian. How, how is that staggering number not moved more of us to action? How is that, that number not lit a fire underneath our butts to start living radically different so that the attention of those around us is grabbed? How is that number not propelled more of us to share our faith how has that number not, not propelled us to share what Jesus has done in our lives? And, and how do we not more desperately want that for other people? There's, there's these four books that I just alluded to, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that again record Jesus' life, uh, his death, and his resurrection. One of the things that we see throughout those books is a lot of the miracles that Jesus performed when he was here on earth uh, are, are recorded in those four books. And in the book of Matthew specifically, there's this particular occasion where Jesus raises this dead girl back to life. He goes into her home. I mean, she's dead. <laughs> and he raises her back to life. And apparently word got out that Jesus was up to some pretty incredible stuff. And so this crowd of people, as would often happen, starts following him around. And in fact, it says, as soon as he walked out of this house, after Jesus left the girl's home, two blind men followed along behind him shouting, son of David, which was a title that they would use for Jesus back then. Son of David, have mercy on us. As we mentioned uh, a couple different points during this series, these men had something that a lot of us lack. They, they knew that they needed help. It isn't until you see yourself as a sinner that you're going to see a need for a savior. 
It's one of the terrible byproducts of, of what our society so often reinforces, this whole attitude of you're number one, that you can do anything that you put your mind to. We, 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 can't, we think that we can just do anything if we try hard enough and we don't recognize that we even need Jesus. It says they went right into the house, they're following him along, and then they went right into the house where he was staying, and Jesus asked them, he asked them a pretty important question, do you believe I can make you see? Come on, guys, do you actually think that, that I can pull this off? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. And in response to that, then he touched their eyes and said, because of your faith, it will happen. Not because of their persistence, not because of their good works, not because they were pretty good guys, not because of anything that they had done, not even because Jesus felt bad for them, but because of their faith. And if you're sitting here today, and again, you're new to this whole Christianity, you're new to this whole church thing, I'm telling you, it's still every bit as simple. It's almost impossible to comprehend that the most high God would make the standard so simple. That the way that you are called righteous, the way that you get a right standing with God, it, it isn't based on what you do, it's not based on who you're related to, it's not based on what you did, you know, when you were in college. No, it's, it's based on trust. It's based on faith. Do, do, do you believe that God sent his one and his only son to die for you, but that three days later he didn't stay dead? He, he rose from the grave. And by that simple acknowledgement of faith, God said, yep, you're in. You, you are called righteous in my sight. It says, then their eyes were opened and they could see. But Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone about this. Now, that's kind of strange, right? And, and we actually see this throughout, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oftentimes, after Jesus would perform these miracles, uh, he would tell people, hey, no, 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 don't go telling everybody about this whole thing. And they're looking back at Jesus like, are you out of your mind? Of course we're going to tell some people about this. Like, I have been blind my whole life. Like, I think they're going to notice that I'm not using that stick anymore. Like, are you crazy? Right? So, he would do this, and there's a lot of different theories as to why Jesus, you know, would, would issue this warning oftentimes, but probably the most commonly held belief is that Jesus didn't want this crowd of people following him around, along, as would often happen, that just wanted to see something cool, that they just wanted to see a miracle. They're like, oh my gosh, there's that guy over there that's like, he's doing some pretty crazy stuff, like he was some sort of traveling magician. They want, he, he wanted people following him around that that were compelled to follow him because they, they, they related so much to the words that were coming out of his mouth and the actions, the way that he was living his life. But as we often see in these scenarios, nine times out of 10, they would ignore Jesus and they wouldn't listen to a single thing that he said and this is no different. It says, but instead they went out and they spread his fame all over the region. Jesus made such an impact on these guys' lives that they felt compelled to go out and tell other people about it. Keeping quiet about it was not an option. I almost wonder, and this is completely my theory, there's literally no biblical support of this, but I almost wonder if in those moments sometimes, Jesus would say this, he's like, hey, don't go telling everybody about this, and then he'd look over at his disciples and he'd just kind of grin at them. You know, and then they walk away and he'd be like, there ain't no chance they're going to listen to me. I guarantee that guy goes out and tells everybody. Like in one moment, he's kind of frustrated because they're not heeding his warning, but, but at the same time, he's kind of proud because 
that their faith and, and what they had just witnessed and been a part of has actually moved them to action. But, but, but here's the point, and, and you can probably see it coming. When your life is changed, keeping it to yourself is not an option. You start living differently. You, you start actively telling people about it. You share it on Facebook. You text people. You share it with your friends at dinner. I mean, shoot, some of you are so outgoing, you'll share it with the waitress at dinner and you never even met her before. You do anything, whether it's something with faith or anything else for that matter. You do anything but keep it to yourself. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were, were down visiting uh, Lance and Lauren, his wife, when they were working at a mission organization down in Guatemala and uh, before you think too highly of us, we weren't doing any mission work. We were basically just sightseeing and hanging out. But uh, one day, one day, we did day one day. One day we went out and we actually did do a little mission work. We went to an orphanage and uh, uh, we went out into kind of this really remote area up, up in the hills of, of Guatemala and uh, we rebuilt this woman's, uh, this widow's home. And it basically is the equivalent of what we would think as like a tool shack like that, that we would have in our backyards. And I mean, again, I, I was part of the construction crew, so you can only imagine how well that was going. So, uh, you know, we rebuild this lady's home and, and there's a huge language barrier and I, I had no idea what she's saying, but one of the things that she kept doing throughout the day was she kept trying to say thanks by offering us things to eat and drink, like the entire day, trying to offer us things to eat, trying to offer us things to drink. Well, at the end of the day, after we had rebuilt her home, um, we had the opportunity to share Jesus with her. She, she had never heard of Jesus before. Uh, and that day, she, she put her faith in Christ. She took a Bible and, and was just so thankful. And I'm like, oh my goodness, just like that, somebody's eternity has been changed. Now, throughout that day, again, like I said, she was offering us things to eat and offering us things to drink. Now, I think she assumed that because we were Americans, we weren't going to drink her water. Uh, interestingly enough, she, she kept offering us glasses of Coke. You remember that? She kept offering us glasses of Coke the same Coke that you consumed a whole mess of on Thursday. The, the, the same Coke that you're going to drink a whole lot of here during this holiday season. That woman had never heard of Jesus before, but she knew what Coke was. And, and here's why I say that's significant as I reflect back on that. Coca-Cola has done a better job getting the word out about their brown sugar water than Christians have done getting the word out about Jesus. It, it, it's fitting today that um, we, we announced when our next baptism service is going to be. Again, that's going to be on, on January the 13th. Um, if you're sitting here today and you call yourself a Jesus follower, I'm going to try to like really, you call yourself a Jesus follower and you have not gone public with your faith, which is all baptism is, it is an opportunity for you to publicly declare, hey, I am a Jesus follower. If, if you're sitting here and you call yourself a Jesus follower, you call yourself a Christian, and you've never taken that step to be publicly baptized, or, or maybe you took that step, but you didn't really take that step because you were a baby, your parents basically took that step for you, but you've never done it as an adult, I cannot begin to understand why you would not sign up for this. And, and, and here's why the, this burns inside of me so badly. You have no idea how God might use your story of life change to help another story be told. I mean, you guys know me by now. It's so selfish to keep that to yourself. So, so I, I am imploring you, I am begging you, if you have never gone public with your faith, 
Or again, you did it when you were like eight years old and you did it because your friend looked at you and he's like, I'll do it if you do it. And you're like, okay, crud, I'll go. Like, I would really encourage you, please sign up to be baptized. On the day where your baptism story is shown, more people will hear about your faith journey than the rest of your life likely combined. And you have no idea, you have no idea what your story might do for another person. If Jesus has changed your life, keeping it to yourself should not be an option. So literally take out your phone right now, email baptismatgrumlaw.com or text that number. Like you can be all incognito about it. Nobody will know what's going on. Just act like you're texting your boyfriend or something. It's all good. Right after this, Jesus, you know, he, he heals these blind men and then he finds this demon-possessed guy and he heals him too. And then the, the rest of the chapter, it kind of summarizes for us. He goes from town to town and he's preaching and teaching all over the place and people are putting their faith in him left and right. He keeps performing all these miracles and blind people, you know, can suddenly see and crippled people can suddenly walk. I mean, it's incredible. It's just like, I mean, it makes it sound like, okay, what are all the gaps there? Like, like we wish we almost knew all the things that Jesus was up to here at the end of this chapter. And the chapter ends and rather that then you would think like Jesus kind of almost being on this, this high, like, you know, on this emotional and on this spiritual high because of all these incredible things that, that had just taken place. Uh, here's what Jesus says at the end of this, this chapter. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great. And what he means by that, he's like, if he was talking to us, he's like, the harvest is great. There's 4.5 billion people that don't know about me. There's 4.5 billion people that don't wear the label of Christian, but the workers are few. The people that are actually going out and living their lives radically different and sharing their faith, that number, he's like, it, it's, it's not so great. Not much has changed over the last couple thousand years. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. The, the, the verb that we, uh, that's translated here is send, it, it's a strong term in its original language. Actually, a more literal translation would be to thrust forth. It, it, it speaks to this great sense of urgency a strong push to get people out there who are actually living their lives differently and sharing how Jesus has transformed your life with other people. It, it speaks to the urgency that 4.5 billion requires. This has been my prayer throughout the series, that, that we would not be a group of people that are content to just come here and listen to this stuff and nothing actually changes, but that we would be a group of people who go out and our lives change. I, I've been asking God not to just send some random people that, that I don't know yet. I've been asking God to send you. You are the workers that God wants to send into the fields. You, you are the people that God wants to send into the world and reach those 4.5 billion people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. We do not have time to waste our lives living out a Christian spin on the American dream. And why? Because 4.5 billion people require that we have a greater sense of urgency. God has chosen you as the instrument to change his, to change her eternity. Jesus left the spread of the gospel his message of life change in the hands of Jesus' followers. He left it in our hands. There is no plan B. We can keep looking over our shoulder, waiting on something else, waiting on someone else, but no other help is on the way. We are it.
You were it. In Jesus' final words to his disciples uh, when he was here on earth, uh, before he, he went up to heaven, uh, and in turn, they happened to be his final words to, to all of us who, who happen to, again, call themselves Christians. He, he says this. He says, I've been given all the authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Don't overthink this. Again, if you're sitting here today and you call yourself a Jesus follower, our, our task is, is twofold. One, it's to go. Go be Jesus. Live your life differently. In fact, live your life radically different. L- live your life in such a way where people cannot help but notice that something has changed. Live your life in such a way where people literally stop you and ask, what is going on? What what, what has changed in your life? When you feel prompted to take those radical steps, don't talk yourself out of it. Do it. Jump off the cliff. Take the leap. You will never regret it. Serve. Adopt. Downsize. Give it away. Put yourself in situations where if God does not come through, you are going to be in trouble. Put yourself in situations where you are desperate for his power. And then two, he says, make. (laughs) I know it's crazy, but Jesus' mega strategy for spreading his name rests in the hands of everyday, ordinary people like me and you, average people who have been transformed by Jesus. And in turn, we feel compelled to tell others about it. There's no plan B. We're it. So let's go. Let's let's make. We can change course. Let's be a part of a movement that reclaims what the first century church had. Let's let's again be that unstoppable force that's marked by radical life change and a reckless obedience to whatever God calls us to do. Our lives, if we do that, they'll be better for it. But more importantly, 4.5 billion people, they need us to recapture this. Let's again make Christianity irresistible.